0: The built environment conversation had to be moved from every neighborhood needed to be rebuilt to the way it was in 1950 to a new conversation of this neighborhood is not going to come back in our lifetime we have to really look to productive land use and and how do you actually create a great neighborhood that has open space and not necessarily structures. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live, where we live.
1: I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Anika Goss, Executive Director of Detroit Future City. Anika joins us today to discuss her role in the decade-long renaissance of that city. Anika, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me, Charles.
1: So tell us, what is Detroit Future City?
0: Yeah, Detroit Future City is a nonprofit think and do tank based in Midtown in Detroit. We started as a planning process, the Detroit Strategic Framework in 2010, and that planning process included over 200,000 Detroiters to create the 50-year vision for land use and economic development and quality of life for Detroiters. And it ended up really creating this 450-page volume and was distributed all throughout the city. It was the largest planning process in the country for any major city. And in 2015, we actually became a nonprofit. And that nonprofit really focuses on land use and sustainability, community and economic development, and planning and research. And most recently, we've launched what we call the Center for Equity, Engagement, and Research, which really provides the combines the high-level research, understanding economic equity and advancing economic equity in Detroit and inclusive engagement processes to make sure that Detroiters are really clear about what those indicators look like for the future of the city.
1: In so many conversations about the future of the American city, we talk with folks um, on a variety of fronts working on different projects in different cities. And the one thing that I haven't heard until now is Wow, the citizenry really felt engaged in this participation process. I have to say that until, until talking to folks in Detroit about your work, that was not something that came up very often. I mean, there's broadly speaking, of course, a, a wide variety of engagement, consultation, participation processes with respect to American cities and uh, without respect to their, you know, kind of efficacy or value We've been struck in our conversations with folks in Detroit about the extent to which, whether it be architects or community development organizations or planners or you know, across every conversation, the citizenry were engaged. They were present, they participated And that, I'm told, disproportionately has to do with you and your work. So how is it that over the course of the last decade, you were able to draw the citizenry of Detroit into this conversation?
0: Well, I wish I could take credit <laughs> for that, but I, I was not there in the planning process. So I've only been with uh, Detroit Future City since 2015. However, I will say, because I've, I've, been in Det- I've spent the majority of my career in Detroit, and so I will say that in 2010, when they started this process, it was probably the lowest point in time in Detroit since 1969. Or 67, sorry. And uh, during the uprising. So uh, people were not working. We had three mayors in a year and a half. People were losing their homes. None of the public services were working. The trash wasn't getting picked up. Ambulance and fire was taking two to three hours.
1: This is as recently as 2010.
0: That was in 2010. Right. And and it was a national recession, right, that national housing crisis. So in Detroit at that time, people really felt like the bottom had truly fallen out. That's not just a phrase. It had actually fallen. (laughs) So what I think happened at that time when the public sector and the private sector came together, Private Philanthropy and the city of Detroit came together to launch this planning process and then pulled in all of these national experts led by Tony Griffin from Harvard. It really, people became involved because they couldn't believe that this was their city. They couldn't believe that for the first time, these hardworking Detroiters, people who had, you know, worked at Ford Motor Company and General Motors for generations were now, had lost everything, lost pensions, lost their homes and didn't understand it. So they showed up. If someone was saying, come and tell us how you're feeling about your city and what you want to see happen in the future, those, everyone is showing up. And so what ended up happening, Charles, that I think is really fascinating in terms of a story of a city is that not only did they show up, a quarter of the city, a quarter of the population showed up. Can you imagine any other, could you imagine like in New York or in Chicago, like any other city, LA, a quarter of the population showing up to a community meeting? I think what the, the, the part of the process was setting a new construct for, how, for urban planning, so urban planning was no longer done by people with letters behind their names and city officials, you know, make leading design and just telling residents what their community should and could look like. The residents themselves, there is this level of trust to say this, we have trusted this process and it has failed us. And so now, if we're going to create a plan all of us are going to be a part of what that plan looks like together. And so the framework is all, it's it's not a good plan, right? It's not a plan plan. It's a framework. It's a set of ideas, but it's also the way to think about it is a set of promises made, right? So all of those Detroiters that came to the table at that time have this framework to say, this is what we said, and this is how we intend our city to grow for the next 50 years. Even if it doesn't follow it, and even if the city changes, this is what we said and how we wanted our city to grow.
1: So 2010, this is only 15 or so years removed from the moment when the city's ombudsman you know, stepped forth, had a press release, and said the city should uh, fence off and abandon to nature the most abandoned portions of the city. So a remarkable transformation. You mentioned Tony Griffin, the planner who played a key role, our colleague at the GSD who's done extraordinary work in Detroit and other and other American cities. And we should also acknowledge, of course, the work of the planning department and Maurice Cox's leadership in this regard. What, what I want to ask you about in this context is the timing and relationship between the 0809 housing crisis, which you've been very clear about, and then the condition, the nadir in 2010, when the entity that becomes the not-for-profit Detroit Future City is nascently born, and then the the bankruptcy filing. I mean, the picture you're painting for me is the bankruptcy in 2013 was almost kind of, you know, the way out. Is that a fair reading? Tell, tell me about how to think about the bankruptcy in relationship to the success of this planning effort.
0: You know, I think it's really interesting because to be quite honest with you, the framework had just finished, but it had just, it was published. The framework, the date it was published was it's like December t- 2012. And then the bankruptcy came with it less than six months later.
1: I want to say June 2013 or something like this?
0: Yeah, exactly. I really feel like at that time, I think it was, A, I think these were separate processes, right? Like they they were not connected. And I do feel like many Detroiters really feel like the bankruptcy that happened in 2013 And I'm a fan of bankruptcy. You know, I spent most of my career in cities that are either going through or post-bankrupt. And I've seen exact, it's always the same process. It comes out good in the end.
1: If it's a tool that's available to the corporate and for-profit world, why should the municipalities be able to avail themselves of it?
0: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And it always works out better for everybody, quite frankly, when cities are, are completely disinvested. However, I do feel like after that very intense three years of planning with Detroiters to then turn around and say you failed and now you need an emergency manager, it felt like a betrayal to a lot of people, quite frankly. So even though all of the tools were there, the way it will end up, hopefully history will, will prove itself to say, You needed the bankruptcy to complement the intensive planning process, because you couldn't have advanced or moved forward any of those initiatives that were included in the framework in the old systems that you had, or with all of that debt without it being retired. So you needed that. But people didn't see it that way. It really felt like a betrayal. It was very racialized and intentional. It was a difficult process, to be quite honest.
1: One of the things I've been struck by in our conversations with folks in Detroit is how, at least with respect to the planning, built environment work, every body, every sector of society played their role. The for-profit developers that have been banking land stepped up. The philanthropic development world stepped up. Uh, The public elected and appointed officials played their role. Thankfully, the design professionals, planners, architects, they were available. You know, am I over over romanticizing this? I mean, my perception so far has been it's one of those remarkable experiences a decade in a city where everybody, including the citizenry, played their part.
0: It was such a heavy lift. I think, like I said, I think people in Detroit might have some trouble seeing it, seeing the long game because they were in the thick of it right? Like there are a number of people who would also say that philanthropy overstepped by bailing out the museums, by uh, restructuring pension, right? Because they had planned on selling the museum to make the pensions whole. And instead, philanthropy bailed out the museum, but didn't really, the pension was still restructured. And that, so there's, there's still some tension in that, but that's also because they're in the middle of it. So that's what I meant. Yeah, I, I, I would agree that it did feel like a number of people played their role. It was also a time of, I think there was a little, a little bit of heroism, that heroism in the negative term, like in a virus kind of <laughs> way, where everyone wanted to feel like the person that saved Detroit, like the individual that saved Detroit. So, you know, whether it was Quicken and and at that time, right, whether it was Quicken coming in and making all of these big investments downtown or Shinola coming in and, and talking about their big investments during that time or the first white mayor since before Coleman Young coming in, a lot of people wanted to come in and really believe that they were going to be the one to save Detroit. But I think this what ended up happening is that it did require all of those people playing their specific role to just do that for us to get to the point where we are today, where Detroit, even during COVID, where we have lost significantly, just like every other city, but we have not seen the same level of disinvestment, recession, homelessness, job loss, you know, the at the same level that we did in 2008. The numbers have, just haven't gotten there.
1: On the one hand, there's a long American tradition, there's a long Michigan tradition, Southeast Michigan, there's a long Detroit tradition of giving, and there are incentives, there are tax benefits and all manner of you know, rules and norms and laws around this notion to incentivize this activity. And parts of the city and parts of the region, southeastern Michigan, have been built with that kind of, you know, that I can imagine the cultural wealth of Southeast Michigan and Detroit, in part coming from that kind of philanthropic giving enabled as it's been. I'm interested, Anika, in your view of the, the role of philanthropy, because you've already described it in a very nuanced and complex way, the role of philanthropy in delivering the public realm in a city like Detroit. It's, it's complicated. You no, know? it's, it's interesting you now.
0: It is complicated and interesting. And I, you know, you alluded to my my own career in I think people in the foundation community would say, well, she's never actually worked at a foundation because I was at LISC, and, and which is true. It's a CDFI, so it's it's
1: foundation foundation adjacent.
0: Yes, foundation adjacent. I would say though that I think in cities like Detroit, Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, you know, these older, Buffalo, these older industrial cities, philanthropy ends up playing this revenue generator, economic engine that you don't see on, in coastal cities or bigger cities, like even in Houston or Dallas. You just don't, foundations aren't taking a leadership role in the economic viability of cities the way they are in older industrial cities. So it is a different dynamic. You know, when Whole Foods came to Detroit in, uh, when Whole Foods came in in 2012, and it was the first Whole Foods in Detroit, it was the first grocery store. It was the first major market grocery store in Detroit in 20 years at that point. And Whole Foods had a program. It was their social program. It's the same program that they use in Oakland and Newark and other Whole Foods cities. But the financing mix for that included significant philanthropy, significant multi-millions. When we had our first, the Q line, which is the first rail that Detroit had, the Kresge Foundation and Hudson Weber Foundation were significant investors. So you just don't see that in other cities in the same way. And so, and you'll find Pittsburgh and Cleveland are very similar in that way, where philanthropy is playing this major role. So I do think that there is a distinction in philanthropy. I think that philanthropy, especially when they're, when it's local philanthropy, are much more sensitive to all of the issues that are affecting a city. So they are equally as affected by what's happening in and around of that city, the viability of that city, The ability for that city to make sure that it's creating opportunities, unlike other markets where you'll have, you know, the California endowment, for example, is just focused on health and healthy communities, right? Like, they're not trying to figure out the tax credit structure and coming up with investment models for, you know, other kinds of things. They're focused on health and kids and that kind of thing.
1: We've posited, and nobody has told us we're wrong about this, that over the last decade or more, Detroit has gone through a kind of renaissance with a focus on the public realm. So in those other cities of Pittsburgh and Cleveland and St. Louis, these other comparables, I recall the foci being economic development and public health and a range of other very important topics. Why was it or how was it that in Detroit, it was the built environment that became one of the primary foci?
0: Well, probably because of the loss of the built environment. The vacancy rate, and it's still, there's still 24 miles of vacant land in Detroit, right? Miles. And (laughs) not many cities can say that. I remember there being a time probably 15 or 20 years ago when Philadelphia had more vacant lots than Detroit. And, you know, we were very comparable to Philadelphia. And then at some point, Detroit's vacancy kept going, right? And Philadelphia began to slow and began to identify much more productive use. So I think the built environment and the built environment, especially in the context of the strategic framework, which then, and this is a really good example of how the framework changed the entire social construct of the future of Detroit. So while the the built environment conversation had to be moved from every neighborhood needed to be rebuilt to the way it was in 1950. So we had to move away from that conversation to a new conversation of this neighborhood is not going to come back in our lifetime with the built environment. We have to really look to productive land use. And, and how do you actually create a great neighborhood that has open space and not necessarily structures? And that is a, a completely different way of thinking. So a very low income neighborhood on the east side with high, high levels of vacancy, then their planning process includes open space. It includes a bioretention that would manage stormwater better for the people who are living there. It includes a wildlife reserve in the middle of a very low, one of the, the, the most concentrated poverty census tracts in the state wants these kinds of things, right? Instead of just only pushing for housing and commercial corridors, they're wanting beauty around them. And so changing that and changing that mindset also changes how you view the built environment. So then where do we invest in the built environment? It's not the the idea of, you know, cordoning off parts of the city that are going to be vacant and let them just revert back to nature. That was a terrible idea because someone's grandmother lives in the middle of that area. But there is this idea that if there is more balance, that will allow for more mixed income housing. It'll allow for a mix of kinds of commercial that we're all looking for. It'll provide for a mix of resources and access to jobs. And so we began to think about the built environment differently. We began to think about even like, what does that mean when we're thinking about inclusive design? Like real, this is not just a term that we're theorizing about, we have to really think about what does inclusive design mean for the people who are living in this neighborhood. And so then the built environment has to be actually built for the people who are living there and then designing for that.
1: On that topic of land use, we have seen and enjoyed really the range of experiments going on across Detroit. Uh, You mentioned earlier the, the various brands that have both emerged in Detroit, but also arrived in Detroit to be a part of that renaissance. And at the same moment, all sorts of activities, you know, wetland remediation and new kind of rail trails uh, programs, tree farming. I mean, Detroit is as interesting and diverse uh, an experimental field for new urban economies yeah. and land use as I've found in the U.S. recently. Help us to understand, people been uh, amenable to that kind of transformation? Like what in this shift of having lived near the plant, and now you're living near the tree forest. Like what's at stake in that transformation?
0: You know, we had the the honor and distinction just yesterday of hosting TEDx countdown. You know, TEDx is doing sort of a during quarantine themed TEDx this year. And so Detroit Future City, they allowed for us to focus on sustainability and climate change. And we ended up giving it basically to Detroit, and it was pretty amazing to see. And so the people that we included were black farmers keep growing Detroit. It was I did a had an, a videotaped interview with the Herb Family Foundation uh, vice president in a wetland in the middle of um, a, like adjacent to old public housing in Detroit. We had over 150 people stay with us for three hours to talk about this online. It was just, and then we had a panel of community partners that were talking about the urban planning and environmental sustainability and how that is the new planning in Detroit. And even, you know, to quote one of our community partners, and she works for a community development organization that when we think, you know, the the new urban planning is when you're building relationships with developers. It's not just the built environment that you have to talk about. It's how they actually impact the environment around them, right? Like they have to actually think about how they're the green space that they're going to either contribute to or take from as a part of New development in a neighborhood in Detroit, even in the lowest income neighborhoods and I, I just felt like the most Detroit thing ever <laughs> yesterday that we were all there, and it was all different kinds of people, uh, and the, the city joined it was it was great
1: urban agriculture you mentioned you know has been in the DNA of the city for a very, very long time you know in the post industrial life of Detroit. I recall years and years ago, the kind of, you know, farm the vacant land with a tractor program and all sorts of experimental, you know, agricultural co-ops and community gardens. How is it going relative to the, the identity of Detroit? Like, are you optimistic that this work is maintaining the, the DNA of the city, for lack of a better word, or is something specific uh, to Detroit's experience and past and not simply bringing in the flavor of the month?
0: I'm so glad you asked that. That's such a good question because I think Detroiters are fighting for that, right? Like what is authentically Detroit and what is something else? And I think there is this really interesting, healthy tension that's happening right now the love the word "gentrification." <laughs> and so they talk about, we talk about it constantly. Please, please when does that start? <laughs> I know. And it's not even really happening the way you know other people are understanding genera- gentrification to be happening in New York, even like in Pittsburgh, where they've taken over whole neighborhoods where there's been true displacement. However, what they are very concerned about that... The authenticity that you just described, that every Detroiter that has been there seen through everything, right? Like because of the nature of Detroit, because and out quite frankly, because it is a very low-income, African, majority African-American city, there are places that just have not been invested in. And I truly believe it is just because it's a city that's very poor and very black that have not been invested in since the 67 uprising, buildings still standing vacant. And there are people who are still living there who may talk about their mother who lived there when, that, when the whole neighborhood was intact before the block burned, right? So... Now, just because Detroit is hot and it's gritty and it's cool and we've got great food, there's a great food scene and a great art scene, and it's now attractive to Brooklynites, they're, they're just not having it. They're not really interested in it. And there's a tension that's there that we're wanting to really, really hold on to. And I think part of what we want to be able to do is lift up and I think this is our role at Detroit Future City also. There is a way to protect these neighborhoods without isolating them from opportunity. And having those conversations part of what I see truly I see our role is is that there is value and these are neighborhoods are resource rich but they're they're valuable and resource rich to the people who are living there also, not just people who are new to that community that have money. So how you enter a neighborhood understanding that this is a neighborhood that is rich in resource and value and opportunity really makes a difference for what your experience will be like and the experience for those people who are already living there will be like. It's a, it's a difficult tension. I also like to say we like to talk about race in Detroit. We talk about it all the time. We talk about it every day. Which is highly unusual for most cities, right? In most cities, people are very, very uncomfortable with race. And when I say we, I mean everybody white, black, Asian, anybody. If you're from Detroit, you're talking about race. And so, but that also creates a really healthy dynamic for conversation about what is and what isn't. And so, people new coming to Detroit with all new ideas and isn't this great? And then when someone says, I don't feel welcome in the space that you've created in the neighborhood. I don't feel, I feel, you feel threatening to me with you and your white family in the middle of our neighborhood and your house looks very different than my house or this shop is not something that I'm not going to buy an $8 coffee. Understanding that there's a racial dynamic is not to meaning to offend you personally, it's to make you understand where you are, that you're not valuing this neighborhood and all of the resources it has to offer. And so that is some of the orientation to Detroit.
1: Importing or bringing designers from elsewhere into town is, whether they come from, you know, around the corner or whether they come from around the world, it's a dicey proposition oftentimes. And I've seen many, many projects well-intentioned and well-worked, that falter on that fault line between trust. Uh, and then you, we add to that the conversation about race. So you, you bring in an architect or a landscape architect who hasn't had that shared experience and then comes in for a conversation about changing the built environment. Of course, there are many, many stories that, that go sideways on those, on those terms. What's been the state of play with respect to outside talent coming in? And uh, should we be optimistic about this as an experience?
0: I think we should be optimistic and I'm going to tell you why my favorite store. And I, as you know, I'm not an architect. So some of the architect celebrities names don't come to me, but the team that's working on the uh, Ford on the, the old train station, the new Ford headquarters for the Ford mobility center. And, you know, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the, Michigan Depot, which is the official name, the Michigan Depot train station.
1: This had been the central train station in Detroit, but also a 24-story office building. And it's an ex- extraordinary edifice abandoned for how many decades
0: now? It was for 30 years, right? Like it was in the 80s when it was uh, last operable. So the firm is an international-based International architectural, I mean, these are the, you know, they're doing parks in Chicago and buildings in Paris. I mean, they brought in the best from the world, right? This amazing team. And the first story that hit the paper, the interview with the designers, was all about how they were going to change the face of Detroit. Ugh. Man, did they get spanked. Let me tell you, (laughs) Detroiters were not happy about that. And it was such a good lesson. They needed that lesson, right? Because how they were coming into the city initially was wrong. And I I feel very comfortable saying that on a podcast because what they then did was go back. They, They backpedaled and Ford backpedaled. The same team is, on, is working on it, but now it's probably eventually when they get to it, when they are finished with it, they are using the, probably one of the most inclusive processes to rebuild the, the Ford, like Ford doesn't really have to do it like this. They could have a couple of community pe- meetings and let people know what this is going to look like, but they're, you know, it's Ford Motor Company. They bought the building. They have every right to do whatever they want to do with it.
1: Ford does not need to ask permission. Is that your suggestion?
0: Exactly. (laughs) But they have been so intentional with this neighborhood, including green space, including walkable and bikeable areas around their new mobility center. Thinking about mobility, thinking about the value of property, because there's nothing Ford... Decide If Ford were to decide to build a building next to wherever your house, your house is going to exponentially increase in value, and you're going to have to reset the taxable value of your own home, and your taxes may now be 10 times what they were last year, right? And so they had to sort of reset with the neighborhood around them, make sure that the businesses all didn't close just because they moved in. And make sure that the residents still feel involved. It's, and you know, Detroiters are not shy about this. If it was really going bad, or they, I mean, they just wouldn't be making this up. And some of the most activist oriented community development people that are involved in this process are saying, no, it's a good process. So, but I think it probably took this level of, coming into a city like you'd come into Chicago or New York and build something beautiful, for them to say, yeah, not here, buddy. We would rather live with an abandoned building before we have you build something that is not inclusive of the people who are living around it.
1: So, Anika, since uh, taking this role in 2015, you've been, as you say, very busy. Mm-hmm as a part of the chorus in the city of Detroit, but also mobilizing a number of initiatives through Detroit Future City. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of those initiatives and give us a little bit of the the granular history, the the sort of day-to-day of the kinds of things that this not-for-profit has been doing under your leadership.
0: Yeah, thank you. So we have been, if you think about sustainability and the triple bottom line and everything that stands for in a community, how all of the ways a community is sustainable. That's really how we're leading with our work in Detroit Future City. Whether it's, we have a mini grant program that block clubs and residents and churches and community groups can apply for every year. We've given about $300,000 in mini grants and have invested, which has created about 15 acres of vacant lots. I'm gonna tell you why that's significant. It's significant because there, because vacancy is so high in Detroit, there's a vacant lot on every block in every city, in every neighborhood in Detroit. We're not just talking about one side of town. There is no block without at least one lot in Detroit, from downtown to the far east side, west side, right?
1: So by definition, anything dealing with that vacancy will be distributed across the city and not just concentrated in any one... Neighborhood.
0: Exactly. So what we do is we have created a design manual that is with architecturally landscape lot designs, but we break them down so residents can use them. And they are environmentally sustainable. They are beautiful, so there's placemaking and they're community building. Uh, And they're able to do this right on their block in their community. And that's, so that's at one level. We also have a team and it's a team of young women, which I'm actually really excited about on, on our staff that make up landscape architects, engineers, and urban planners that provide consultation for green stormwater infrastructure for both residents and small businesses and churches. So we'll help you read your water bill. We'll make recommendations, on how to manage stormwater better so that you can get a stormwater credit uh, and really helping people understand that connection for them. Uh, I'm sure you've heard if you've talked to others, water is a very serious issue in Michigan and also in Detroit, whether it's lead or water shutoffs because all that's significant. And so it's all tied together. The other area that we're also very, so that's our land use and sustainability work that we're doing. Uh, We also have an ambassador program and we partner, we have a whole coalition of nonprofits that focus on stormwater management and education and training residents to be ambassadors for stormwater management as well. The second area is community and economic development, which is a really interesting area because we focus on, the way to think about it is in a Detroit neighborhood there are three things, there's more than three, but these are the three primary things, housing, commercial, retail and small business, and industrial sites. There are over 900 vacant industrial sites in the city of Detroit scattered throughout. So Detroit Future City has, has taken a role that nobody else is interested in and <laughs> in not only studying these sites and creating a strategic plan for the city, But we are also doing a lot of community planning along with LISC and community partners around neighborhood manufacturing and adaptive reuse of vacant industrial at the neighborhood level and using inclusive design practices to actually advance that work.
1: Anika, the picture you're painting, you know, brings us in a way back, uh, full circle, to questions of economic development and community, and how we might be able to, you know, to live in a place like Detroit in a way that is both, you know, optimistic about the future, but acknowledging its changed conditions. You know, in our conversations, we've touched on the the shift from home ownership to rental. You've described the challenges around uh, growing African-American businesses. Uh, and I know in your research work, you've been recently focusing on the question of the black middle class and the notion of growing the African-American middle class uh, in Detroit. So tell us about that research and why it's the focus of your work uh, going forward.
0: Yeah, this is it's become sort of the pinnacle, uh, raison d'etre for, for Detroit Future City, because it's it's really the Detroit story. Right. Like Detroit was a middle class city. My grandmother came to Detroit in the 30s. And for that middle class dream, like a lot of other Detroiters, we actually Detroiters make less money now. African-American Detroiters make less money now than they did in the 1960s. So we have lost our middle class. I mean, in droves. It's the largest demographic. Uh, the African-American middle class in Detroit that we've lost. It's actually now more than uh, white households. We've lost, we're losing more black middle-class households than white households in Detroit. And so one of the reasons that we focused on it was that those two reasons, but one of the primary reasons, other than it being the largest demographic that we were losing, but it was also, we discovered that 75% of Detroiters are making $50,000 or less. So when, even when we're talking about the middle class, Charles, we're only talking about between $46,000 a year and $116,000 a year. That's Detroit's middle class because our income is so low. Only one per, our 1% are people who make over $100,000. That's the 1% in Detroit. So if we were going to change that dynamic, you should be changing it with the demographic that you already have. So the, the, the way to change it isn't to, to try to get 33,000, because that's what it requires, 33,000 new households to move into Detroit for their income to be Within that, within that middle-class bracket. It's not inviting 33,000 people to move to Detroit. It's increasing the income, the household income of 33,000 Detroiters that already live in Detroit. Imagine if you could actually do that. And quite frankly, when we broke it down into a map throughout the city, and you spread it out as uh, if you looked at where the middle-class communities are throughout the city, because there's only 12, which actually when we did our national resource research, with Detroit having 12 middle-class households, that puts us in the top 5% in the country, that there are actually only five other cities that have more middle, African-American middle-class households than we do, which is shocking to me. And so the study itself it was just, it was amazing. Like the only other study for this work for African-American middle-class at that time when we did this work in January of 19 was like black enterprise. Like there was no one else was doing it. There was no other academic institution or think tank, national think tank that was really focused on this demographic. So we really believe that this is really possible because actually... While it requires, we would have to increase 33,000 households, it would only really require 13,000 households within those census tracts in and around middle class communities to get to that 33,000, right? That's really possible. That's not that many people. That's not that many people. You could do that. That's a couple of new factories, that's a couple of new job centers. You can do this.
1: So in that sense, I want to ask Anika about this work going forward. So what are are the plans you have, you know, going forward in this role? What do you see Detroit Future City embarking upon in the coming years?
0: One of my dream plans, (laughs) I'll just, I'll tell you that I'm trying to convince someone to fund, but we're going to figure out how to do it anyway. And we've been working very closely with, well, I should, I think of it as working. I'm sure the Brookings Institution thinks of it as annoying, Um, (laughs) I really want us to focus on uh, African-American, Latinos moving into the highest growth sectors in the country that are based in Detroit. So STEM, AI, EDs and Meds, all of the highest growth sectors. I want to be able to create a whole other track for African-Americans and Latinos to participate that because that's where, that's where the money is. That's how you grow income. And it actually grows talent for the city in a way that we have not seen. I feel like we need to do research on this to understand what it requires. I want to be able to change the system, which would require really scaling up a lot of great idea programs. There's a lot of code programs that Tech programs. I want to scale all of that. And so I want us to be able to really move that in a really large systemic way in Detroit with a lot of other people. (laughs) So, but in the short run, the center is actually creating that. So that's my vision. That's what I want us to do. What you'll see from us coming out in the coming months is in early next year, we're going to be issuing a report on our economic equity indicators, which is something that we've started with from our Center for Equity Engagement and Research, where we're gonna be identifying a set of indicators that we're going to be measuring um, over the long term in terms of how Detroit continues to grow and change. And so it'll kind of lift off of the framework and begin to put some of this into practice. How are we growing incomes? What kind of jobs are there available to actually create opportunity? What does housing look like? What does small business investment in terms of growth? So we're going to be measuring those things for Detroit in the coming months.
1: And our listeners who want to support this uh, research going forward can find you at DetroitFutureCity.com. Anika Goss, thank you so very much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilroy, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. Visit